Hello, you're listening to RSA Radio. I'm Matthew Taylor. In telecoms, one of the things you learn about networks is the ways in which crises or disturbances can spread across them and why you need to build in buffers, why you have to build in resilience. It's a completely different mindset to the ways in which the policymakers, the regulators and others in the late 90s thought, which was really a 19th century economic way of thinking about how you optimise things. Bodies of political philosophy or ideas founded in a different era will come unstuck. One of the most defining characteristics of our times is the ever-multiplying and accelerating flow of information. It's a source of continual and disruptive change to business models, to how we consume the world, to our social relationships. In this episode, I'm joined by Jeff Mulgan. He's chief executive of Nesta, but he's going to be talking to me about the ideas in his book, Connexity, How to Live in a Connected World, which was published way back in 1997. The book described communication technologies tying the world into an ever closer and more intricate web of connections and interdependence, while simultaneously challenging and replacing attachments to nationhood, organised religion, traditional values, and underpinning it all, a dream of greater individual freedom. Jeff argues in the book that in order to live well, this narrow idea of freedom was inadequate, and instead we needed to go beyond our sense of ourselves and our organisations as isolated units and to recognise our deeper mutual interdependence. He suggests the need for an evolution in our mentalities and institutions to deal with the new challenges posed by this age of connexity. He also talks about ways of doing government that go beyond left and right, beyond big and small, beyond paternalistic or laissez-faire dichotomies. Shortly after publishing the book, Jeff was brought into the 1997 Labour government. He was director of the government strategy unit and head of policy in the Prime Minister's office under Tony Blair. Jeff, could I ask you to cast your mind back to the moment when you wrote the book, you were, you still are, of course, a major public intellectual, but it really felt you were absolutely kind of on the cusp of a wave of exciting thought at that time. The origins of the book really lay in an attempt on my part to understand what I thought was a fundamental change in the world. I'd worked in local government, in the European Commission, uh, been an activist and worked under Ken Livingstone when he ran the GLC. But I had a sense there were deep changes happening in the world, many driven by technology which rendered many of the ideas I'd been brought up on potentially obsolete. And so I I spent a year at MIT working with the people who were, in fact, inventing what became the Internet and the World Wide Web and so on, and trying to understand the implications of of a networked world. And then during the 90s, I set up the think tank Demos and tried to reflect some of those ideas in our policy proposals and our convening but sensed that most of the people we were dealing with didn't really see the world the way I'd come to see it. I'd internalised a way of looking at the world in terms of networks and systems and interdependencies, which sort of seemed obvious to people who were immersed in the technology. But most of the political theorists, the politicians, the civil servants had actually a very different formation. And so I wanted to write a book which pulled some of those threads together and linked them really to the moral, the ethical challenge of a connected world, one where our actions are much more likely to have effects on others, whether it's us disseminating lies or contributing to climate change by the way we drive a car or the way financial markets work. 
and trying to really pose a question of what is the ethical, institutional, political response to a world which is quite different from that of the 1940s or the 19th and 18th century worlds, which had given rise to our dominant political traditions, whether liberal, conservative or social democratic. And there's this real sense of a point of inflection, both in the book, but also, as you say, in Demos, and it's it's urging to kind of move beyond categories of of left and right. Is that how it felt at the time, that something very big was shifting and that it was important for you to get people to understand what it was that was going on? I thought something big was shifting, but I think I misunderstood the timescales. And this was a probably an optical effect of spending too much time with the techies. So, you know, I assumed that everyone would be, you know, on broadband, we'd all have smartphones, be immersed in what we now call big data, and that it would be obvious to everyone that this was a different kind of environment, needing different kinds of a response. But in fact, even 20 years later, many of these issues are only really coming to the fore. So in the book, I wrote about things like, you know, false news and toxic ideas, and how do you regulate those or or the handling of personal data when that is being shared on a much larger scale. So in retrospect, I greatly exaggerated the pace of change. I think I was broadly right on the direction of change and the fundamental sort of shift almost in the architecture of the world, which which we're in the midst of still. When did you last read the book? Because of course, I've got the advantage of it. I've just reread it. Well, I did look at it again about a year ago, prompted by a couple of people who had uh, reread it and said to me, "Ah, oh, your book hasn't really dated very much. Have you looked at it? And I did read it again. And there are bits which are very wrong. But most of it doesn't feel particularly out of place in 2017. One of the bits of fun of reading it, because it is a, there's an element of kind of futurism in it, is the things that you got right. I mean, you unbelievably accurately predicted the gig economy, for example, almost word for word. You were possibly a little bit optimistic about the capacity of computers to plug directly into brains. I think we're still quite a long way away from that. When you reread it, were there particular moments when you kind of cringed thought, uh, slightly and thought, I wish I hadn't said that? Well, I think my main errors were ones of exaggerating the pace of change and over-optimism, and particularly over-optimism about the capacity of institutions to respond. So I'm very optimistic about how global institutions around the UN and others will respond to a wholly interdependent world and act in a much more integrated way representing a global interest. That has hardly happened at all. Uh, And if anything, they struggle even more now with national power than they did 20 years ago. So before we get into those issues in depth, just uh, I think a lot of people who who haven't read the book, they've just read the cover or the name, think it's a book all about technology, when in fact, it's a book of political philosophy in many ways. So at this juncture, just give us the core thesis of the book. The essential argument is that a world's which is much more connected, and it is partly connected by technology, but also flows of trade or flows of people or the way in which military power connects up, has a different structure and requires us to take responsibility for that independence in a way very different from the past. And its argument is that bodies of political philosophy or ideas which are founded in a different era will come unstuck. So an individualistic approach which believes that all you need to do, for example, is set the conditions for markets to work and then allow individual choice to play out will almost undoubtedly lead to horrible side effects on your environment as well as systemic crises because the institutions are not designed to cope with resilience and interconnectedness. So on a whole series of fronts, essentially it is a challenge to political ideas or the design of institutions to say, if we really are much more interdependent, and I argued we were, 
there are far greater flows of data, information, money, people, and so on. That has to be the starting point for how we think about our obligations and how we fix problems. What's interesting to me reading the book now is that your arguments, which you could describe as a kind of argument for a, a kind of communitarian liberalism in a sense, these are arguments which have re-emerged again and again since you wrote the book, re-emerged in the notion of red Tory, re-emerged in the notion of blue Labour. These all seem to be attempts to say we want to keep the benefits of free markets and technology and all that, but we've got to have some kind of underpinning in relation to shared values and shared lives and we need to devolve power to community. So there's very, very similar things. I'm kind of interested, why is it this argument keeps being made but seems to lack purchase? Well, the fundamental argument in a way is about freedom. What does freedom mean? Perhaps two or three hundred years ago, freedom meant freedom from others. It meant being you know, ultimately a Robinson Crusoe, living on an island on your own and without having to worry about governments taxing you and um, oppressors bullying you. But in a very densely interconnected world, freedom's nature has to change. It has to be more bound up with both a personal ethic of responsibility for the effects of your actions on others and your relationships. It also requires institutions all the time to be trying to navigate a balance between amplifying freedom and digital technologies are one of the tools which has hugely amplified our ability to make different kind of choices. But to balance that with a sense of what are the effects of those choices on the whole system we live in, whether, again, it's, it's the, the natural ecology or the, you know, the, the news media, the environment of facts and knowledge around us. And I think it's not surprising that almost every political tradition has tried to engage with this dilemma. These are the right questions, but they are difficult. Often they are about holding almost opposite ideas in tension with each other. They are not straightforward arguments about the nation or about individual freedom or about, for that matter, the public good being able to always trump individual freedom. And that's why I suspect we haven't yet come to land with almost viable ideologies for the world we're living in. It seems to me that why this is a difficult argument is that it has to also address issues of inequality. And I think reading the book, Possibly the biggest thing which I found jarring, in a sense, was that you you mentioned it a few times, and it's implicit, but there isn't a kind of recognition of the danger that what connexity will do is divide the world up into those who benefit enormously from it and those who lose out from it, and that that conflict between the winners and the losers could become highly problematic, which seems to me to be an aspect of what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, I certainly underestimated the importance of essentially distributional equality issues. But I think they're very complicated. The ways in which amplified networks, digital technologies have affected distribution doesn't really fit caricature pictures. I was in India earlier this week. Undoubtedly, in the last 20 or 30 years, the huge spread of smartphones, universal identifiers, all sorts of things, has massively empowered people at the bottom of society in ways which probably people like me underestimated how much that would change. Similarly, in China, the spread of um, social media, Weibo and so on, has been in some ways an extraordinarily empowering process, again, for the poor and the relatively poor, as well as others. 
what I underestimated was the extent to which the very top, the top 1% or even 0.1% in almost every part of the world have been the huge beneficiaries of a more networked world, able to to gain money, to hoard it to themselves, to connect into political power, media power, and so on. And that's a glaring gap in the book. But I don't think it's correct to say that as a whole, a more connected world is a more unequal one. And where large numbers of losers face a small number of winners, that simply hasn't been the case in much of the world. It may have been true in the US to some extent and in parts of Europe. But the key about all of these tools, these technologies, they amplify power, they amplify control for everyone. And then it's often very specific conditions which determine who is able to make the most use of those to improve their their condition. So there's there's an economic issue here. But as we've seen in the debate about the Trump victory and Brexit, there's a question about whether this is to best be best understood as, as a kind of consequence of economic disadvantage or cultural dislocation. And one of the things that you do talk about in the book, but I guess if you rewrote it, you talk about it even more, is the need to attend to the cultural disorientation that can take place in this kind of world. And part of what we're talking about when we talk about these inequalities is that if you are the kind of person who jumps on planes and flies around the world and benefits from migrant labour, it's great. If you're someone who's stuck in a place where it's very hard to move from, you don't feel that globalisation benefits you, you, you have a very different attitude to it. So when I wrote the book, I I did have some interactions with the kind of club class Davos world who had a very glib view of connectedness and were massively enjoying the benefits of their ever-increasing pay and status and the fact the world was their oyster. So I tried to attend to the other feelings which come into play, people's need for belonging, their need to feel rooted to place and locality, if anything, even more if they're connecting more often with others on the other side of the world through social media, the need for meaningful work and opportunities for people who won't be the global jet sets or lawyers and corporate executives and film stars. And there is, in a way, a sort of dialectic running through the book, though I probably didn't take it anything like far enough in terms of how we respond to interconnectedness. And a very interesting aspect of this is the relationship between face-to-face interaction and online interaction. It's one of the reasons why we've just recently been doing some work on democracy, new forms of democracy, which I wrote, Ernesto, which I did write a bit about in the book 20 years ago. And what we found is all the really successful recent innovations in democracy use digital tools, but also have a lot of offline face-to-face meetings and bring the two together. The same is true within organizations. We still benefit hugely from face-to-face interaction to pick up on already the subtle cues of what's going on. And the more you rely on phones or email, you get a, a degradation of that kind of subtle nuance, which is key to us feeling we belong and we, we fit. I, is I guess this an example, Jeff, of, of what you were saying earlier, which is, as it were, the book possibly underestimated how long these changes take. And part of that maturation is that we discover that there are some things which it's great to become digital and we'd never go back to the old ways. And then you see, for example, the fact that online courses don't seem to work as well as you might think because it is important to have the human interaction of teaching. So we're starting to find out a little bit more about what does and what does not lend itself to going online. Exactly. So in education, it's much better to combine online with offline if you want to actually stick it learning a course. And I think there's a fundamental issue about trust and so the bonds of society. We work best in a highly interconnected world 
if we can combine those very wide and often a bit shallow links with our maybe thousands of Facebook friends, but with a much smaller group of people who we know well, we spend time with, we can really trust, we can be vulnerable in front of. And in terms of making difficult decisions, whether it's in a a company or in daily life, it's still the case that very small circles of of face-to-face trust are the key units which we depend on for the stuff that really matters. In a way, what we're learning about a connected world is that we still need those small scales of deep mutual understanding in order to, to get by. And one of the problems of digital technologies is on their own, they risk creating these very wide, shallow networks of acquaintances, none of whom you can rely on in a crisis. And one version of a connected world, a purely almost technocratic one, is almost a vision of hell because it's one without any sense of responsibility or mutual obligation. Again, another reason I wrote the book is we're spending a lot of time with the tech pioneers, mainly in the US, who I feared were almost bringing into being, without realising it, a vision of hell, of a completely networked world in which there was no longer any real space for ethics, obligation, responsibility, the things which actually matter for us most as human beings. I want to look at two or three of the aspects of the book which I feel that you felt optimistic about at that point and to check in to whether or not you retain much of the optimism. So I want to start with one which I share with you And I'm hoping, in a sense, you can help me renew my optimism, which is this idea of the notion of human evolution, in a sense, that human beings will develop, that we will attain a kind of higher stage of consciousness in order to be able to deal with technology and the way the world is changing. That does run through the book. You have an idealism. You have that sense of of human development. How does that feel now? Well, funny enough, I've just finished writing another book, which has quite a large section on the evolution of consciousness, that notion that over long periods of time, human consciousness does evolve and with a direction towards more depth of understanding of self, of others, of place in the world. I suspect Connexity was over-optimistic about the pace of change. I've got no doubt there are pockets of more advanced consciousness dotted around the world. And by that, I do mean people who are able to, in, in a sense, align the logic of their own private life and relationships with the needs of others and the needs of a planet and a a sense of really the big now and a, a sense of a big here far beyond the narrow circumstances. But equally clearly, these are not linear processes and they never were in the past. And one of the interesting things I've been looking a lot at recently is the history of evolution of consciousness, which is a very messy evolution of periods of dramatic progress and then reaction and regression. Some of it is understood, some of it is not understood. But I think it's not plausible for anyone who's really interested in the world as it is not to have some view of what could or indeed is happening to consciousness. The idea that humans in 100 or 200 years' time will have the same way of thinking as us seems to me highly implausible, even if it's very difficult to predict with confidence exactly how our successors will think and why they will look back on us and slightly wonder why we were so simplistic. One of the moments in the book where I kind of had to almost bite back tears was when you are writing about how schools and education needs to change and focus on a kind of broader set of intelligences and insights. That argument is just, it's completely stuck. Well, certainly in this country, hasn't it? Again, this is where my current work 
in a sense, echoes that work 20 years ago. We've been doing a lot of work looking at the likely effect of automation on jobs in the next 10 or 20 years. What sort of jobs will remain? What skills will they require? Perhaps not surprisingly, they will require skills of working with others, of mutual understanding, of emotional intelligence, as well as things like creativity, physical dexterity. And it seems fairly obvious to many people, including the OECD, that we need schools not just to teach English, maths and so on, but to cultivate character, capabilities, attitudes of mind, which are about being able to cooperate, collaborate, think systemically. In this country... Policy has undoubtedly been going in an opposite direction for quite a long period, but other parts of the world are absolutely attempting to do the things I was writing about in Connexity. So I try to be a long-term optimist, even if in the short run I'm a pessimist, because the people with the most power in the system simply do not get either, as it were, the moral aspect of this, or I think is actually just the factual trends about what's happening in the labour market, which mean this is a necessity, even if you don't buy into the moral arguments. The fact that I could walk into a school now, and it would be no different from walking into a school in 1997, is part of this more general point that you've referred to, which is kind of institutional inertia. Why is it that your hopes that we would develop new types of institutions, all different kind of levels, from the global to the local, that so little of that institutional innovation has taken place? I mean, I experienced this directly when um, when I went into UK government fairly soon after writing this book, probably with fairly high hopes that some of its underlying ideas would resonate with the people I was with. Uh, In retrospect, that didn't happen. It hardly happened at all. The leading politicians I was dealing with were really schooled in a different era. They were interested in the internet, all this new stuff coming along, but thinking of the world as a network and a system was simply not part of what they had learned at university, the books they had read, their you know conversations. The civil servants, meanwhile, were much more schooled in a neoliberal economic view of the world as about maximising individuals. And again, they had no feel for the technologies or these broader ideas. As a result of that, it was very hard to introduce radically new ways of thinking. And the default for those institutions was often very technocratic imposition of things like, you know, new approaches to reading and maths in schools and so on, rather than cultivating the kind of qualities of mind which uh, I was talking about. And in many ways, uh, an approach to economic policy, which was a compromise with global market capitalism, but no attempt to think through what institutions would be needed to cope with the likely sort of systemic crises which come with interconnected systems. And I've learned, you see, in, in telecoms, one of the things you learn about networks is the ways in which crises or disturbances can spread across them and why you need to build in buffers, why you have to build in resilience. It's a completely different mindset to the ways in which the policymakers, the regulators and others in the late 90s thought, which was essentially a really a 19th century economic way of thinking about how you optimise things. Where in the world do you see the, the kind of scale of institutional innovation which sadly we're not at the moment seeing in this country? I don't think there's any one place which is the model. Northern Europe continues to probably be the most dynamic place in terms of quality of governance and openness to ideas and where much of what I was writing about in that book sort of is a bit obvious. 
But I'm very struck how surprising some of the innovations you find are in different places. So, say, in India, I've just come back from where the government introduced biometric identifier for well over a billion people, which has made it possible to completely rethink banking, rethink welfare, rethink cutting corruption, a scale of ambition, and very much run by a, a systems and network thinker, Nanda Nilakani, founder of Infosys, who, as a matter of course, believed you should create platforms on which multiple new elements can be adapted and evolved in exactly the spirit of several of the chapters of Connexity. Now, that's quite surprising for that to happen in India. United Arab Emirates is a really interesting case, not a democracy, uh, but where they're putting 1% of all public spending into innovation, designing into all the government departments what they're calling accelerators to generate new ideas, reshape how they work, reshape how they do regulation with an energy and a really creativity, which I see no signs of in countries like the UK and US. So are we just an old country that is now incapable of that kind of scale of sinking and risk taking that, that you've described it happening in India? No, I think we're perfectly capable of it. And we're a country full of phenomenally creative people in business or the social economy. But it's difficult to get those changes through unless they have leaders who understand them. So the example I gave in India, that only happened because a prime minister was willing to give authority to this guy and the team around him to do something radically different. If our leaders political, official, and I think the media as well, are essentially intellectually stuck in a different area. They haven't really come to terms with both the possibilities and challenges of a networked world. Then it's not surprising we don't get really the license to to experiment and innovate, which you do see in other countries. Because I think that's another one of the aspects of the book where your hopes have been dashed, or certainly in this country, which is that you talk about the need for a different kind of relationship between politicians and politics and citizens. And we both worked for somebody who at that time in the the mid-90s and those early years in government looked like he had a particular kind of relationship with British people. They certainly invested a lot of hope in Tony Blair. But actually what's happened over those 20 years has been a continued deterioration in the relationship between politics, the political establishment and the citizenry. Can you see any point at which that process could be put back on track? So in the book, I write about what I call adult politics, by which I simply meant an adult conversation between politicians and citizens, which was honest about what they could do, what they couldn't do, what the options were, rather than a sort of PR spin government by 3am tweet or government just by speech. And at the moment, it's fascinating to see the world going in almost diametrically opposite directions. On the one hand, in large parts of the world, almost a return to faith in the big man to sort things out, whether it's Trump or Putin or Xi or Modi or Abe. But at the same time, all over the world, some fantastic examples of what I was writing about 20 years ago. So Taiwan, surprisingly, has probably the world's most interesting example of a parliament and a government using a very creative, open adult process to design legislation. Anyone can comment on what the facts are to be discussed, can throw in experience, can make suggestions in a very structured way which then allows for a much more adult, sophisticated conversation about options. Over the water in Paris, the participatory budgeting scheme of Mayor and Hidalgo, which allows any citizens to propose ideas for spending, comment, etc. 160,000 people took part in it last year, including 60,000 school kids who made decisions on spending relating to schools. This is exactly what I was hoping to see, is these more grown-up ways of seeing 
the work of government and politics and spending money, not just as something done to the public by politicians and a few civil servants, but opened up to be much more of a, say, a shared conversation about what's needed, what's possible, and then to review what's happening. Portugal is doing something very like Paris at a national scale at the moment. And we've identified examples all over the world. Their problem is that at the moment, much more of the attention and the real power is with the the regressive step to have faith in big men. But I would bet quite a lot of money that the big men will disappoint. (laughs) Yes, the answer to me, 2017, will be the year of betrayal as the promises of populism don't deliver. With the noise of the dying conventional media, the rising social media going on, can you imagine that we could see politicians, people talk about Justin Trudeau as an example of someone who's different, for example. Can you see a new generation of politicians who have that capacity to reach over all that noise and to develop a narrative of that sophistication with citizens? Well, Justin Trudeau is certainly doing that at the moment, as are quite a few of the other Canadian premiers. There are a lot of politicians around the world who are able to talk in a very adult way. I work quite a bit, for example, the mayor of Seoul in Korea. It's a city of 11 million people. And he believes part of his duty is to be in an adult conversation with his citizens, that every action should be educative, not just polarizing options. I see a lot of the newish leaders in Latin America of a much higher caliber in that sense, in terms of, again, a more honest, more adult, more educative style of leadership. So I'm not not all that pessimistic. I think one of the big things where we have a fundamental problem, and I did write about this in the book, and it's obviously come to the fore in the last year or two, is really the the informational ecology in which we make decisions. That is so important. And it was so obvious even 20 years ago that the risk of a much more connected world, much stronger social media would be that lies, half-truths, distortions would be amplified more than truths and that therefore we would need to strengthen the institutions which had truth-telling at their core. That might apply to things like public service broadcasters, but it might also imply some regulation of messages on the Internet. It would imply some obligations on the main intermediaries uh, to ensure they were not purveyors of falsehood. So is this this in a sense treating information like you know, water or electricity is something which is a, a commodity that, has, that is a utility, but in a sense we have to make sure it's safe as well as ubiquitous. It's the meta commodity because if that is corrupted or degraded, then you cannot have a functioning democracy. People can't make good decisions about their own lives. It is the, it is the most important thing in any society. And digital technologies both amplify truth and falsehood. And this is, you know, the fascinating thing about them. They're they're not inherently good or bad. They make it much easier to root out lies if you want to use them that way. They make it easy for all of us on our phone to check a fact if we're having an argument in a pub or a cafe. So in some ways, they can be designed to be incredible aids to a much more informed debate on everything. But equally, unchecked, they can have exactly the opposite effect. And that's why, again, I argued this 20 years ago, we need new kinds of institutions to help amplify their good qualities and constrain their bad ones. Just finally, Jeff, you're one of number of people I guess I am in a smaller sense, who love ideas and then find themselves moving from being the ideas creators, chucking them over the wall into government to being on the other side of that wall. Have you got any tips for the future generations coming along who love ideas and love the notions of change and then are going to have to get involved in the hurly-burly of politics? What 
do you know now that you wish you'd known back in 1997? Well, I had a sort of slightly odd career in it. I, I began work on the other side of that fence, working within local government, European Commission, etc., perhaps before becoming an ideas person. And my instincts are probably more to be a doer than a thinker. But Connected is probably a good example of what not to do in many ways. <laughs> so in retrospect, this was not a book or an argument well fitted to its primary audience. It was using a whole series of intellectual frames, which for people like Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and so on, were alien. They just had no engagement with them. So they didn't make much sense to them. I'd be much wiser to have couched things in the terms they would have understood. There were not easy sort of takeaway action points. You know, remember, very busy people need massive simplification if you want to have an influence on them. You know, boil it down to one or two bullet points. And this was an essay, in some ways a very old-fashioned essay of ideas trying to you know, circulate around things and to get quite deep. And it's not a book you can read very quickly. I mean, I hope if you read it slowly, you enjoy it more, but it wasn't designed for a sort of very rapid-fire takeaway society. So your self-critical response to my question, this is something I've heard you say before, which is that when you know social innovators, ideas people complain about the sclerotic, difficult nature of government, I think I've heard you say, encourage those people to be more respectful of how difficult decision-making is. Because when we talk about ideas and policy, the, the assumption is that ideas are great and policy is problematic, but actually there needs to be more mutual respect. Well, absolutely. I've got a great respect for the tough job of implementing things. Ideas are cheap. You know, doing stuff is much harder work. People are very busy, so you have to do them a favour in the way you communicate ideas. See, I thought I was doing a smart move by reinventing a very old English word. So connexity is an old English word, and I rather liked the idea that we had in our, our heritage a word ideally suited to this very new era, and one which I thought better described what was going on than words like globalisation. I still think it does. But I, again, it hasn't caught on. It's not in everyday use on the street out there. And I'd have been wiser to have made this sound more like the other ideas in the ether at the time. One of the things I did actually ahead of this program was reread some of the reviews, including reviews by kind of eminent intellectuals of the time. They comment on the bits of it which were like the things they knew about. And they almost completely missed the central argument because it just didn't fit their frame. And that shows that I was really dramatically failing as a communicator. Tell me about the new book. When's that coming out? The new book is on collective intelligence and it comes out in the autumn from Princeton. Great. Well, hopefully we can talk about that. Jeff, you've been refreshingly willing to be self-critical about the book and what you got wrong and what you do differently, including perhaps the title of it. But I would say, having reread it, it's still a fantastic read. And I don't know whether you did predict this 20 years ago, but of course now books are never out of print. You can always get them. So if anyone's interested in reading Connexity, I can strongly recommend it. Jeff Morgan, thank you for joining me. Thank you. This podcast has been an RSA and Resonance production. To receive future podcasts from the RSA, make sure to subscribe.